And so in the West, when you unseat those from whom the practices come, it makes them easier to exploit, right? And yeah. I don't know that anyone intentionally did that, but I think that's the nature of privilege and power and supremacy is that it, it by its very nature, it centers itself, you know? So when like, um, uh, Paramsa, you know, Paramsa Yogananda came and talked with the Parliament of World Religions, the white folks in the East and then in LA and the West who studied with him couldn't help but center themselves. Didn't look mm. like, why are there so few Indians here? We need to help uplift. Like they just didn't even think about it and they just centered themselves and they became that, those lineage holders. Hey, 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 friends. Welcome to the Naked Podcast. I'm your host, Martisa Williams. In this space, we'll explore a whole range of practices for our individual and collective freedom. My entire life has been spent soaking up practice after modality, after protocol to free my body and soul. Join me in conversations with the world's foremost thought leaders on topics ranging from health to sex to spirituality to justice. So, are you ready to get naked with me? Well, let's talk about it. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the Naked Podcast. If you are listening to this episode on the day that it comes out, today on November 5th, we're in we're still waiting to hear what's going on with the election and who it will be our next president here in America. Um I hope that you are taking care of yourself in the midst of all of this uncertainty and drama um and anticipation and doing what you can to, you know, stay centered and stay grounded in what's important for you and your life and um, the world that we're building together. Ultimately, we have a lot of work to do regardless of who um, ends up winning the election. So um, I think it's important to keep that in the forefront of our minds and just keeping that like, regardless we have to continue to stand for community and for truth and for connection um, over everything. So before we get into this episode, my only announcement is um, we have an, a meetup for Books and Yoga coming up on the 15th. And we will be reading Beyond Survival strategies and stories from the transformative justice movement. So if you are interested in joining us, um, the link will be in the show notes to go and grab your tickets. It's always a good time. It's um, a book club and then we practice together and we really just use that time to learn and to dream about the world we're trying to create. And it's all virtual and it will continue to be virtual moving forward. So, um, Feel free to join us even if you don't finish the full read and you just want to enjoy some conversation with like-minded folk, please, please do so. So 
that's my only announcement. So let's get into today's episode. I am so excited to share with you this uh, conversation that I had with Indian yoga practitioner Susanna Barkataki, who is the founder of Ignite Yoga and Wellness Institute and runs Ignite Be Well, 200 and 500 yoga hour yoga training programs. She is a ERYT 500, so she's trained over 500 hours for um, teaching yoga. She's a certified yoga therapist, um, and she is the author of the forthcoming book, Embrace Yoga's Roots, which will be coming out this month around November 16th. Um, I highly recommend checking out the book. I think it's really important for those of us who love yoga, have practiced yoga, to be listening um, to South Asian voices um, and POC voices in this movement, in this practice, um, and learning how to practice with integrity and depth with kind of reckoning with the colonial rule that has really separated the practice of yoga in many, many ways. And that's really what we talk about in this episode. We get into how Susanna and I met. We talk a lot about her upbringing and a lot of her background as an Indian English uh, woman growing up in England. Um, We talk about a little bit about what is yoga, just answering that question. It's such an expansive question and answer and probably one of my favorite parts of this this entire episode. We talk about the diversity of the yogic path, a conversation on separation, where are all the South Asian yoga teachers and what happened to that um, traditional ancestral lineage. Um, And then talk about some cultural appropriation in yoga, which I think is really, really important to discuss. And then how to honor yoga with respect. This is a great conversation, especially if you're in the yoga world, you teach yoga, you practice yoga, you're interested in yoga. And even if you're not, I think it's really impactful. So let me know what you think, and I'll see you on the other side of this episode. Hi, hi. Hi, so thank you. Yes, I'm so happy to be able to talk with you again. Um, Susanna and I met, just for the listeners, Susanna and I met, what is it, two years ago at this point, maybe, um, at a uh, the yoga service retreat. Mm-hmm. And we had an amazing conversation about cultural appropriation in yoga. And since then, I've really followed your work. So I was super excited to have you onto the podcast today. So thank you so much. Yes, and at that um, circle where we got to share in a small group, we had a conversation, Martisa, that just like has been one of the, you know how you have these conversations and they stick and it's like a driving force, you know, whether publicly or privately for some of the work that, um, that I've done over the last two years and some of the, the thinking about the work. That's amazing. Thank you so much. That's amazing. So I start with all my guests. Um, the first question is, uh, what made you you? Hmm. You know, I have, I wrote this poem when I was 16 and it 
starts um, something like wild mangoes not sweet enough, green forests not wild enough to keep my family here. And mm -hmm. so what makes me me is the intersection of colonization and like indigenosity. Mm. And the intersection of like being completely torn and kind of separated and wished by other forces and other people that I would never have been born. And mm. then like being me and, and coming into the world the way all children do is like tuned into the divine and a child of God or goddess or the universe, however folks choose to see it. And, and so it's like both and both complete separation and then complete unity, I think is what makes me me. And there's like stories that go into to all of that, but that's like the essence of it. I love that. That's perfect. Do you mind going into the, some of the stories? Because I think you have a really interesting kind of background, just like where your family is from and just all of that. So do you mind going into some of it? I don't, I don't mind um, at all. So... I was born at a time, you know, where mixed race families weren't uh, allowed to marry. And mm. I was born in England. My father's Indian, Assamese, and my mother's British. And they couldn't, first of all, find anyone to marry them. But then when they decided to, they married anyway, and then they decided to have children, they were told, oh, you, you need to adopt. You're going to have half-breeds. Oh, my uh, gosh. Yeah. And it was, it was just such an intense experience for them, I think, but they just kind of bar like barreled their way through. They're clearly, mm -hmm. my parents are very stubborn. <laughs> convention and what was expected and um, the norms of each of their societies, because it wouldn't, you know, it was on both sides on, on the Indian side, they would have preferred him to come back and, you know, arranged a marriage to an Indian woman. And on my mom's side, it was just straight up, you know, racism. And so though I was born into this situation where there, there was just so much, like the belly of the empire, right, in England, like into a place where there were fire bombings happening of mixed race families and Indian mm. families. Mm. Um, there was, it was a life under siege for folks of color in England, very similar to what it's like in the U.S., um, but even less numbers. So there was, there were still at that time, you know, now England in the big cities is very different and there is a lot more color. But, you know, I remember walking down the street, this is jumping forward a little bit, but walking down the street and people just like sticking their heads out of their cars. Oh my like, gosh. Their necks because they'd never seen anyone that looked like me or my brother. And we're pretty light skinned, right? Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. folks go. So, um, so there was a lot of external forces of negation, of hatred, of, you know, like everyone trying to erase who we were. And so mm. at that point, I didn't really understand all of that. You know, I was, a baby in the womb. Um, and then, you know, my mom actually had to leave her work because of the discrimination she was experiencing, both from being a woman and a pregnant woman, but also from being a woman married to an Indian man. Wow. And, yeah. And so 
you know, we can't, I came into the world in that context, right? So like a little child and then it's like, whoa, what is happening? And I, I remember not understanding and being very confused and not understanding the forces at play. So they just went inside mm. at a young age. And I think a lot of folks of color can relate to this. Like I had a lot of self-hatred, a lot of insecurity, um, a lot of imposter syndrome, you know, even like super shy, like so shy that I wouldn't be able to talk to anyone who wasn't, you know, basically my parents. Um, my mom tells the story of me just like hanging on her skirt, like hanging behind her skirt and, and hiding anytime any of the family or friends came over. So there was a lot going on, you know, that I, I didn't have words for. And then we moved to the U.S. because we had to get out. It just wasn't safe in England at that time. And, um, and so we came, I smiled a little because it was sort of like the legal with benefits way. Um, at that time it was the U S and, and I can reflect on this because it's like, there's so many people just to tie this to a universal story for a second who have the same kinds of conditions that I had right mm. at, at under siege in their own home countries, maybe at the fault of the United States government. In this case, it was, the British government, right? So it wasn't the U.S. that had caused this, although it continued manifest destiny and all of that. But we were able to get in to the U.S. kind of through a, an extended visa um, that wasn't a refugee visa, but it was kind of um, along those lines. And when we got here, it was like, oh, we'll go to L.A., the place of freedom and you know diversity and everyone's included. And then unfortunately for me and my brother, there was still so much racism, you know, mm -hmm. and white boys on the block we live that were trying to fight us or put us down or physically, you know, hold us down. And none of that, you know, it just like, none of that now is a surprise mm -hmm. but to a child who's just like, what is this world and how do I fit in and where do I belong? You know, and being made fun of for, cultural elements of food I ate, you know, the way I dressed, the way I talked. And then later, you know, if you fast forward to high school and college, like the very things I had been like physically punished for as a child were the things being exotified and mm. sold in a context of yoga culture. This was really, really confusing for me all through up until I studied, you know, race, class, gender through the lens of power, privilege, all of that. I was lucky to go to a high school that taught me that. But even with the, those teachings, I didn't fully apply it. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't fully understand it until I left, went to college, still pretty, you know, assimil assimilated, like just trying to survive. And then came back and taught students in a high school. And only then when I was able to like kind of shine the light on the oppression for other folks, did I start to realize you know, how bad it had been for me. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I, this is kind of a tangent, but I'm interested to know your response. Um, what were some of the tools that you used to kind of begin to tease apart and unlearn some of that, that hatred that was, I mean, yeah, we take it as self-hatred, but it really was like a gift. They like left it on your doorstep, you know? Right. What were some of those tools? Hmm. You know, the biggest tool I think a lot about 
the gift of, and it's like the gift in the wound, right? So at the high school that I went to, I went back and taught there. Mm. And I was teaching there. I was, I was just 21. I had just graduated college. Um, I didn't have a teaching credential. But I was teaching there at a time when Patrice Cullors, um, who is now co-founder of Black Lives Matter, Mark Anthony Johnson, who helped found Dignity and Power Now, a number of other folks were going through the program at Cleveland as students. So I'm like four wow. or five Right. So I'm in my first year teaching. They're in their last year as students. And things are just up, like for all of us. I'm things are up for me because of what's going on for my students in my own life. For them, like we're queer, we're folks of color, we're getting kicked, different people were getting kicked out of their families' homes, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, immigration issues, just like police violence. There was just so much happening. And so we formed a collective. It was really an ad hoc collective. It wasn't formal. We formed a collective of just like, like we need to be one another's chosen family. So mm. when, you know, we drive by a house or a place and we see the Confederate flag, like there's a place we can go to process, to cry, to grieve, to rage. And so we formed this collective out of need, out of the need of what we were all dealing with and you know even though it was different for there were different kind of overlaps depending on our identities and our positionalities um, we all needed support and out of that collective we started to turn it a little more formal and we met at least once a month and we'd have spiritual space in the morning so we'd always bring in and what was great was like different folks would bring in practices from Ifa or Kondomle you know, from their roots, like African roots. Yeah. Bringing in, because we actually had some white allies in the early days. It shifted and we did a lot of cross, um, cross racial work, but some white folks would bring in pagan rituals. I would bring in things, you know, Vedic rituals. People would just bring in aspects from their own, their own path and their own, you know, their own practices and their culture. And so we would always start with spiritual space. Then we would usually eat like cook for one another which is great um eat a wonderful meal and then um and often food from our different cultures as well and then we would um maybe do like racial justice work or work on power or work on privilege or you know work on class it just depended and then in the afternoon we do like create some kind of action so mm. you know, performance art kind of thing that we're all planning or we did something called earth path of a deity where we had spoken word and we were sewing costumes and you know so there was a lot of there was spirit there was justice and then there was like service and creativity yeah recovery recovery was like a fundamental you know for for a time a number of people in the community went completely sober um that we folks went in and out of sobriety but the foundational theme of of like if we're not in recovery, we're reacting to something. So whether we're we're in recovery from white supremacy or from substance abuse, that framing really helped us, I think. That's Um, incredible. Yeah. I was so, you know, looking back, it's like, I I wouldn't be where I am if it hadn't been for that community, despite that all the rich cultural heritage, because it was there, I actually had a divination and he fought. And in the divination, the um, the Baba told me, you know, you need to do medicine. Like your your path, your destiny 
is to do medicine. Now, you're saying this, you're saying this to someone who had been told as an Indian person, like, be a doctor, be a lawyer. My whole life, <laughs> that's what I heard. And I wanted no part of either of those. So, like, hearing that, I was like, oh, what does this even mean? Why am I being told to do this thing that all my uncles have been telling me to do that I don't want to do? <laughs> went on to explain, he's like, you know, and he thought, like, this doesn't mean Western medicine. Mm-hmm. No medicine for indigenous people is a very broad thing. It doesn't just mean like you go to school for eight years and you study and you do this. It's like, maybe it's an an invitation to go back to your root medicine. Mm. Yeah. And so that really like had me thinking, because I loved being a teacher. I was super committed to being a teacher and I had no interest in taking another life path, you know, Um, at that point, I was pretty early on in being a teacher too. And, but I was like, okay, what is this telling me? What is this telling me? And what it was, I came to understand was, you know, some of my family in Assam and India are Ayurvedic practitioners Mm. form of indigenous medicine. And so I realized, oh, I need to study Ayurveda. And, And even though I'd lived and practiced, you know, some aspects of Ayurveda and some aspects of yoga my whole life, I had not formally studied either of them at that point. And so I found, I looked everywhere to find an Ayurvedic school led by Indians. I didn't want to go to an Ayurvedic school led by white folks. I just didn't, you know, right. didn't, with the message and the way it had come. That wasn't what I was being told to do. And so I found it and studied and, you know, that kind of took me on this path that I've embarked on. And if it hadn't been for that community that process of, you know, we reflected each other's light, right? Yeah. And even... I'm sure you, or I hope you have, and list folks listening have, there's people who see you not for just where you are, but for like where you're heading and they kind of lift you up or push you along or shine the light on that part of you. Um, that's what that community was. Now it wasn't without trouble. We, we definitely, you know, as close communities and family, chosen family, we fought, we had our issues, it wasn't perfect, but they really, I think we all tried to be that for each other. That's incredible. I had no idea you had a connection with Patrice and Mark Anthony and all of them. Like, that's incredible. I mean, it makes total sense. Like, absolute sense. <laughs> right. And, and it's important, actually, because without that understanding, I don't, first of all, I don't think, like, there's no yoga without justice. There's no, you know, it's like the, the message that I have brought to the yoga world couldn't have come without an intersectional understanding. And I couldn't yeah. have an intersectional understanding without having grown up alongside someone like, you know, Patrice or Mark Anthony or Carla, a number of other folks that Richie, you know, I know you've interviewed who's amazing. Richie went to the school that I taught at. Right. Know? That's crazy. Wow. Yeah. yeah That's was, amazing. Uh, be the change community that we all like helped co-create and cultivate together. So all of these things, it's like, all of these things happen not in isolation, right? Mm-hmm. Movements happen in isolation. So I think for people listening who are like, but I don't know how to start or I don't know how to continue. It's like, call up those people that are your inspirations or that you just see or that you're like, wow, they seem cool. And just be like, hey, can we chat? Can we get to know one another? Can we you know, support one another? How can I help you, right? It's really in the relationship building. And that time was a unique time. It's different now. You know, that was like, we were young. It was very organic. It was really necessity, you know? Um, But now I do the same thing, just a little bit. It's maybe 
I mean, I'm older now, so it's a little <laughs> worse in a sense. I had to be like, hey, I think your stuff, let's build together, you know, but it's, it's really not that different. Right, right. So I want to kind of go back a little bit um, or set some foundation because surprisingly enough, this is the first episode that we'll talk about yoga at all, which I think is actually perfect because I, I wouldn't want to talk about yoga outside of this kind of foundational context. Um, but as a yoga teacher, I'm, it's funny because I've kind of really brought distance to myself with my practice and not necessarily with my spiritual practice, um, but I've had a lot of, I stopped teaching. I had a lot of questions for myself. And so I would love to, the question I have for you is like, what is yoga? Which is, you know, obviously the ginormous question, but I'm, I love your answer to the question based off of your book. Um, But I have found, I have become really disillusioned with Western yoga and I stopped teaching in studios and formal studios because I was having a really hard time convincing myself I was doing it the way that I wanted to be. You, I mean, like in a reverence, in a way of reverence, in a way of honoring. And I decided to stop because I was like, I don't, I don't, it doesn't feel in alignment. I don't feel like I even have the training that's based off of something that would be more in alignment. And I had incredible training. I was trained by black women um, and I had this incredible lineage. And at the same time, I struggle with the cultural appropriation piece. I struggle with the consumer, the capitalism piece is really hard for me. Um, So I'd love to get into that, but like in the beginning, what is yoga? Mm. How do you define it? Because it's it's huge. It's a huge question, right? No, it's, it's a great question, and I think it's quite common for discerning and thoughtful folks to see what yoga has become or what it is in Western yoga culture. Like, really, we'll call it the yoga industry. Mm. So disillusioned, and for some people, that can happen, you know, right away. Like, if they know what's possible, and for other people, it's just like a slow understanding that, oh my goodness, like what we're being taught or sold or shown is not at all what yoga is. Right. So, you know, what I'm going to share comes from mostly from the teachings of my main teacher, whose name is Shankarji and who taught me for a while, over a couple of years in Bodh Gaya and um, which is a region in India. So I share that to say, Naming our sources and naming our roots is like you did with your training. And, you know, it's always an important part because everyone comes from somewhere and this knowledge comes from somewhere. And if we don't name the people who brought it to us, then we're kind of like doing that thing of of appropriating or misidentifying where it comes from. So that's where this comes from. And there are hundreds and hundreds of texts we've only translated into English a very small number of yogic texts. So first of all, there's a vast amount of yogic knowledge we don't even know about yet. So that's one, you know, like hundreds and thousands of texts that have not been translated. That's crazy. And that's translated from Pali, um, from Sanskrit, 
from different regional languages. There's about 260 regional languages all over India, you know, from Telugu to Kannada to Bengali to, you know, like Urdu, like there's so many different languages. And, and there are texts in many of those languages, plus in the, the kind of the first languages of yoga really would have been um, probably the regional language of uh, Magi, which is, was spoken in some of the regions that yoga developed in, which is that place, Bihar, and then over by the Saraswati Plain, which probably was pa uh, Pali and maybe uh, Sanskrit. We don't really even know. There's a lot we don't know. But so I say that to say it's a rich and vast tradition. Right. Yeah. And my understanding of what yoga is, is a codified, organized, and developed system for personal and social liberation. That's really what it's intended for. It's systematic. It's organized. It has different parts. There are different schools with different kind of takes on those systems, and mm. there always have been. Um, there's been more formal schools. There's been more like spin-off schools. That's you know no different than now, but it's it's always had many different aspects to it: um, physical aspects like asana, but also ethical aspects like the yamas and niyamas, which are like the ethical precepts or the personal yogi codes, um, ways to behave to oneself and others. Pranayama, breath, pratyahara, like focusing the senses, um, dharana, which is like mindfulness, dhyana, meditation, samadhi, bliss, and joy, and cultivation of liberation and interconnection, but also a lot of other things we don't talk about, even beyond the Eightfold Path. So when mm. I first started talking about this, I said, okay, practice not just asana, which is the third limb, but the other seven limbs. But actually, now I'm going beyond that and saying, you know, that's just one system, but, but you know, Patanjali's yoga. But there are many other aspects to yoga, like seva, service, right? Like, um, like mantra, voice, chanting, cultivation of sacred sound, mudra, cultivation of sacred gesture, um, drishti, like literally using the, the eyes and focusing as you watch something, could be anything. Um, there's so many aspects to yoga culture and yoga practice that get left out or that get, you know, completely like whitewashed or washed over in yoga in the West that are integral to what it means to find one's own liberation and to share that with others. And so really the reason I'm so passionate about this, there's two reasons, I think. There's like the inner reason, and I think many of us have both, like the inner and the outer reason, is learning yoga helped me like back to that young girl who was so confused and dealing with so much oppression and so much self-hatred like yoga was what helped me repair myself mm -hmm. helped me heal myself and and then at the same time it was what helped me be of service mm -hmm. to, to the community that i was in and around like with the peers that i shared but also my students you know, and I'm not talking about yoga students. This was like ESL, and this was a second language student. It was yoga I taught them. You know, I wasn't teaching asana, but it was yoga. I was practicing with them. Um, not, again, asana, but just a way of being and an uplift. And so I think it's that. It's like if we don't practice the full expanse of what yoga is, we're missing out on a path of liberation. 
And it's a path that didn't come to any one person. You know, it's different than Islam that came to like Muhammad or Christianity that came to Jesus and that Jesus was a spokesperson. Yoga, there wasn't like one spokesperson of yoga. There were many practitioners, you know, many practitioners all over, as far as we know, the Middle East um, and also like the what's now the subcontinent of India, Pakistan, that region for thousands of years. And so we're like just taking one little part instead of looking at the whole system and trying to practice it and share it, then we're really doing a disservice to that system of liberation. Mm, yeah, I love that. I love that. Cause I, I mean, the asana piece is incredible, obviously. And, but the whole, I think I, I often times think like how, what would it look like for Westerners to honor yoga in its entirety? Like what would that look like in our studios? What would that look like in practice? What would that look like throughout our days? Um, Because I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. You know, so it has a reach. Like if, if that tells you anything, it tells you it has a reach. So I'm interested in your dream space about what it would look like for it to that level of reach to honor yoga. What would that look like? Does it have to be outside of a capitalist model in order for it to be honor honoring or can it be? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, I feel like as a change agent and as an activist, I often say I work both outside systems to dismantle them within them sometimes to try to seek change from within and like even policy changes right so i'm kind of doing all of the things at once and understandably some people critique me in different roles Mm. Um, i'll give a concrete example as the consultant i never worked for yoga alliance but yoga alliance reached out to me a couple years ago and said hey we want to do better will you consult to us and i said okay you have to hire other south asians to do this too, and they did. Um, and I offered many thoughts and suggestions and didn't hold back, but they didn't implement a lot of what I suggested, right? So in that case, someone could critique and say, well, Susanna is working for, even though I never worked for them, but um, I was willing to work within the system and give them a chance, right? Um, that is one aspect. Whereas when I created the Honor Don't Appropriate Yoga Summits, and there's a third one to come sometime, <laughs> but the first one was, Majority of folks of color um, talking about what, how do we honor and not appropriate. The second one was all South Asians. And the third one will just be BIPOC, um, okay. the black indigenous people of color only. And we'll talk about intersectionality, which is a necessary thing to talk about. And Samadhi, like how do we get to liberation? So that for me was working more from the outside, right? Like, like the, no one was platforming me or folks to like me at all, anywhere in the yoga world. So it's like, F this, I'm just going to create my own damn platform. Right. You know, and interestingly, I gotten a little money from my grandma who had passed away on, on my British side. And so, cause it takes money to do these things, right? This right. is, it's still a little questionable because I was working within a capitalist system, right? I had to have some help to get some online stuff up, but um, it was very DIY, but still working within that structure. And then, and then it created a whole new, frame where other people were like, wait, oh, 
We don't have to wait for someone else. Like we get to do our own thing. And there's been so many great is, you know, it can't be any one person. It's always got to be a movement and a community. And, and I think it, it is. So those are some different ways. And it's a long way to, to say, I think my vision is really the community. Mm. And there are people in the community who want to succeed within a capitalist structure. Right. And like folks of color, black folks, brown folks, South Asian folks who are like, I want to have a yoga business and I want to, you know, thrive and have pleasure and have play and have joy within this structure and um, and make it right, which shouldn't be a revolutionary freaking ask, but it is. Right. right. And so I don't think it's on me to say, well, no, you shouldn't have that. I think ultimately, <laughs> you know. Yoga at its root, I think in many ways, is a counter-capitalist project. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not a project that brings us to sense pleasure as a, uh, an end game. It's, a, its aim is beyond that. And so in a way, it's like beyond capital, beyond life, beyond worldly interests. Um, do some of us maybe need to pass through like that time on our path or stay there? Yeah, right. And so there, there's so many different kind of ways and stages and evolutions. And I think there will be more and more kind of like this early renunciates. And I see actually many activists this way um, and organizers. It's like they're like they're completely focused on a higher cause, right? right. On a on a specific cause. And I mean, Patrice, I think, and I'll share Patrice's example, Patrice Colors, who wrote a book that if folks haven't read, they should definitely read called oh, when, sure. yeah, when They um, Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir. So she shares her story. And Patrice is now like featured on Vogue and on Ebony. And like, so she's working within a system, but why, right? It's always for the sake of what? Um, as one of my colleagues, Tanya, as uh, always says, for the sake of what? Well, she's doing it to further a message. Right. And so I think it's that. It's like grassroots activists kind of renunciate in a way. Um, and then there's going to be some people who are doing it for the business aspect. Um, I'm personally kind of interested in both. I'm interested in moving causes forward through using the tools of marketing and business and all that. And, and I find that interesting. It's like a, a different kind of social change tactic um, where the aim is really the impact not the success of the project but then the success is necessary in the world that we live in right so um so it's kind of a both and uh, for me in terms of the vision and and ultimately really i've been thinking on this too it's like but yoga available yoga the full expanse of yoga available to all who would want it not in some like pushing it on people, right? Because not everyone wants it. But the kinds of yoga available um, taught by folks themselves. You know what I mean? So like when I worked in the Valley as an immigrant in the San Fernando Valley, and I I went to school as an immigrant, and then I went back and I taught. I was serving a community that I came from. And so there, there was a match, right? When, um, when I worked and shared yoga as, you know, with teen parents, um, I had not been a teen parent. So there's not quite a match there for that community. Was I helpful? Yes. Would it have been really more impactful to help train 
one of those young people up to then be able to go back to their own community? Yes, you know, so, um, so more like the vision is really community and collaboration and folks working within their own spaces to provide the uplift that's needed with yoga as a tool among many other tools. There's so many. Yeah, absolutely. I love the connection you make about and when you define like what is yoga, you said it as like, this is about the personal and the collective, which is literally like the basis of this podcast is about exploring practices for the personal and the collective freedom. And I'm interested to know like nitty gritty, what does that, how do I phrase this question? I'll say it like this. I always think that like in order for us to be able to show up to the collective and to be, and to get free from a collective standpoint, each individual has to be confronting their own barriers to freedom, confronting. And obviously there's the social barriers to freedom as well, but like confronting our in on an individual basis, the places that we are not free within ourselves in order for us to like reach collective. So where do you think is yoga starting from that micro of being like, Mm. let's do it individually. And then that will collect, that will turn out to be everyone else. Or is it like from the macro saying like, okay, this is how structurally we can change things. Or, you know, I, I would probably say it's both, but like, I'm interested to know your perspective. You know, one of the things my teacher um, Shankarji impressed upon me is there's like loosely these four paths of yoga um, yana which is like the yoga of knowledge and study the, those of us who've done teacher trainings or any kind of formal study that's yana yoga um, karma yoga the yoga of action so more like being of service taking action working in the world it doesn't have to be like i am taking action it can just be like you're doing your job you're doing your life but you're doing it in a very intentional way um, so um, yana, karma, bhakti, devotion, devotion to the divine, ritual, uh, more spiritually engaged kind of life, and um, raja, which is, raja encompasses, raja is like kingly yoga, encompasses more of the physical path, the eightfold path, uh, more of that organized codified path. And so there's already these four different ways. And I would say karma yoga is a little bit more like the macro kind of working on. And, um, and bhakti too, bhakti, like bhakti yogis can be the most generous practitioners of seva, of service. You can never, you know, encounter. They're just like giving, I think of my grandmother, my Aita, who, you know, she didn't have a lot of food for her own family, my father and his siblings. But when there was someone who came by her house or passed by in front, you know, it, was a, it was a small village, she would invite them in and feed them. And so that was just this automatic gesture of service, of seva. Mm-hmm. And that's like the bhakti yogi path. And so that's kind of a engaging on the macro, on a micro level. Um, whereas like yana yoga, more of the study, um, or Raja is maybe more kind of starting inward, starting here. So it's kind of both and, and all of us will be drawn to different paths or maybe our personalities connect us to more different paths and maybe even at certain times in our lives. Mm. I think of myself, you know, my early life, 
when I say early, I mean like in my teens and 20s, was more of a karma yogi. Like I was out in the street, I was protesting, I was teaching, you know, in, in LA Unified schools. Um, then I turned into yana. And now I'd say I've continued that path of, of yana yoga and also um, raja yoga, just for context, right? So to yeah. me, it's both of those. Well, well engaging seva and service, but um, but less from a like detached way. I'm a, I'm a little more engaged still. I can imagine that at a later stage of my life, you know, I mean, I might be in an ashram. I might be, you know, the kid is all grown up. I'm, I'm able to just spend many, many hours in retreat, in silence, in meditation. You know, that'll be a different form of engagement. Yeah, I love that. I love how fluid yoga is, which I think trips up a lot of people. You know, because it is so expansive, it's so fluid, it's so, um, there isn't just like a checklist and now you're, you're liberated, right? Um, there's this really beautiful, constant circle of, of what yoga means, you know? And so I think in our, our Western brain, it's so very linear, it kind of can like go right over your head, but I, I think it's a beautiful way the how multifaceted it is is so beautiful to me it is and i actually want to hear your answer because i'm sure you've thought about it too to the question you asked me about like the vision of yoga like for you what is that like yeah i think i too am am the thing that has always drawn me okay let's let's step back so the i came to yoga like in high school purely because like my friends were doing it. They were doing Bikram and, you know, killing themselves in the sweaty rooms. And like, you know, I started there, but then once I got into that practice, I was like, there's something about being in my body this deeply that Mm -hmm. called to me in a way that I had not been called. And I'd been an athlete. I was a gymnast for years. I I was competitive gymnast, all that kind of thing. But there was something about, being in my body in a regimented way that like sent me straight to some type of stillness. Mm. And so um, in college, I revisited it in the time, a period in time in my life where I was very um, confused, lost, traumatized in a, in that space. And so I needed something that was going to, pick me up every day. So I was practicing literally every single day, just like needed it like water. Mm. Um, and then out of that almost obsession came the, and like the study, I was like, I want to know what it is. I want to know how is it that this thing is making me feel this good. I want to know about the other limbs of this practice. And, um, as I began to kind of self-study with that and just going to all of the all of the retreats, all of the, you know, all the events in in my local yoga studios. Then I moved to wanting to share it from service for service. And that's Mm -hmm. when I began to teach. Um, I am, I'm sure you're, you're, you may be familiar, but yoga for a good hood here in Rochester, New York. Mm -hmm. Um, but I began teaching for that organization. And so then it became more of this outward service space. Um, But to answer your question, I think I'm always interested 
on how deeply the individual can be free. I'm like always interested, because I'm always interested that that's like, I just believe that all of us came to this world for that. But I really truly know that I came this particular life to like see how free I could be. Mm. And I think that's why I chose this race to be black. I think that's why I chose this time. I think it's why I chose all of these things. And it's, and so yoga for me has been like, how deep can I be free? Because it's only when I feel just immense freedom in my own body and my own psyche that I can have the space to imagine that on the macro level. So that's a long-winded way of saying that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so powerful. And I mean, there's something so at choice, right? Like, I remember feeling so victimized at a certain point in my life. Um, and a lot of terrible things had happened to me that someone would look at and be like, oh, poor girl, you know, but, but I remember feeling like a victim. And then I remember that moment, actually, in the Himalayas where a particular teacher was like and this is a little intense not everyone's gonna buy this right or find it helpful but for me it was helpful in that moment but they were like the things that happened to you like perhaps that was some karma that you were playing out Mm -hmm. maybe instead of being like oh poor me you can be like oh thank goodness I exhausted that karma (laughs) I'm not gonna adapt it on the next generation or then you know your children or your students or whoever like change the cycle. They were like, instead of feeling like a victim, find some way to feel empowered in your circumstance, in your situation, and help turn those vicious cycles into virtuous cycles. And for me in that moment, you know, when I was like, there is no way that this, like, I didn't deserve this. Like none of us deserve the, the systemic oppression the you know, sexual violence, any kind of like the, the gender base, the, um, transphobia, homophobia, like we don't deserve any of that. Mm-hmm. And there's this way that when I took on like, whoa, like on a karmic level, maybe I did come here for a reason in this yeah. form, body, in this way, in order to help shift and shape like those systems. Then I was like, oh, that gives so much more meaning, you know, and more purpose. It makes me feel less like at, you know, the mercy of all of these forces and a little bit more at choice. And it did, that shift in perspective really has helped me feel more free. So I could hear some of that echoed in what you're sharing and I can relate um, and understand that I'm in no way trying to gaslight, right? <laughs> F this, this is not right. It is not right. <laughs> no, it's not. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think that yeah. what I've realized recently is the incredible um, privilege, I think that's the right choice of words, um, for our ability to at least, hmm, I'm going to say this and I may not love it afterwards, but um, our ability to be able to choose our own thoughts mm-hmm. and at least like to be, and not, maybe not even choose your thoughts, but choose how we want to perceive regardless of what's going on on around us. That has been huge for me. And I think saying that both of us as people of color who obviously have dealt with the shit that we've had to deal with, 
to not continue to give my, there's something to like not continuing to give my power away. Yes. It's like powerful and empowering for me. It really is. And it actually is that deeper kind of practice that yoga invites us into that tra- just is so traditional, but is rarely discussed or mm-hmm. described in modern and Western yoga. Um, that's what the practice is about, right? It's like seeing the world and not being distracted or caught up in the attachments of the world. Um, Seeing the world, even being provoked and then not following the provocation, but like detaching somewhat. All of the yoga sutras, like when you read, you know, the the yoga sutras, it gets very esoteric and Mm -hmm. very, um, very kind of non of the world because that is a potential of the practice is that, you know, becoming something beyond just this body, just this form, just this um, state and, and connected to more to that big S self, like the universal self, the, con- the greater, you know, whether we call it God or universe or spirit or, you know, just continuation or interconnected energy, whatever, however we see that, it's an invitation into that, which, which truly it's like, when I look back, I remember one of my friends in the community I was in was like, Susanna, she's like, I think I was born, she's a woman of color. She's like, I think I was another life, like a white boy and maybe, you know, a brown boy and maybe like, and just hearing her say that, this is, we were like 16 or 17. I was like, wow, you know, that she could be in this form as a young black woman and be like, I hate this system. Mm -hmm. But I also think in another life, I may have benefited and contributed to the system yeah I'm gonna act and do everything in my power to change it now but I have empathy and compassion even for those who are in that different role that blew me away yeah because it there's that's oh that's the yoga like that it is about like there is no separation like there's no separation and there never has been and we're just we have to change the perception that we've got so that was in your book, that's like the big, almost like the crux piece for you in the book is this piece about separation and like how to heal that separation because yoga ultimately means unity to come together. So is that something you can talk about? Just the piece about separation from any perspective, but like um, from like the cultural appropriation piece from, you know, Western yogic space, like let's talk about the separation piece. Yeah. So, I mean, I want to turn into it because I actually experienced similar to what you experienced in college, um, feeling a lot of anxiety. I was having panic attacks, you know, just the stresses of college being in a new place. And I went to a yoga asana class and I also, like you were sharing, maybe my own version of it, right. But experienced this like, ah, at homeness in my own body and found a way through some of that relief. Um, and I think, you know, as a friend was talking, I was talking with them. There's a way that just because we experience relief and we experience benefit from something, we can feel a really personal connection to it and relationship with that thing, but it doesn't make it ours. Mm. Um, you know, like, for example, hip hop. Like, I love to live quilly. Um, Huh. I grew up listening to him and just, you know, 
really feeling something from the lyrics and from the beats. But that doesn't mean I would go out and create music like that, right? Mm-hmm. It's like I can benefit and I can enjoy and I can uplift. It's not mine <laughs> to right. then. And so, um, so I think there's something to that where with yoga, we can develop this personal relationship and this tr- experience great and immense transformation. But there's still, you know, depending on our positionalities, like it's not our birthright to then go and like share it and exploit it or um, benefit from it, particularly because South Asians and Daisies, you know, Indian South Asians in the diaspora are displaced in the site of yoga in the West. And so that separation happens in multiple ways. I mean, one, it happens just through these isms that we're talking about, like racism or classism or, you know, colonization. But it can also happen when we like think that we deserve something, like a sense of entitlement, right? Mm-hmm. It's a between even ourselves and our own like studentship, our own humility, our own um, just like being present with what is. And so I think that happens a lot in the yoga world where we experience this great liberation because it is such a powerful system. But then people go on and like do whatever they want with it. And that's where you end up with yoga and goats or beer yoga and all of those things are actually harmful in terms of cultural appropriation because they are disrespectful to the tradition, but they're also taking it out of context of that broader system of liberation um, where, you know, it's, it, there is a separating it out in a way that's harmful. Right. And so I think, um. The reason that separation is such a theme for me, besides just that it, I think, is the theme of so many of our lives and, and has certainly been of mine, is that's what's happened to yoga today. Is it's been cut up, it's been divided, it's been separated. And because of that, um, the way to unity for ourselves and for yoga is to explore and really look clearly at, well, where is that separation happening? And where can I be in more integrity and act from that place? of integrity and become more in alignment, not physical alignment, like in a pose, but more alignment with values with yoga itself, developing a relationship with the full expanse of yoga. Yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful way to put it. I, my thought while you were speaking was there's a line in your book where you were talking about um, how you were reaching out to different festivals and things like that and being like, hey, there's no South Asian folks here. Like there's no people of color on your docket. There's no trans folks. There's no, there's nobody of side. Like there's no kind of diversity here. What's going on? And then you saying like, I have some, some musicians for you that would be great. And their response was like, it's too authentic. Yeah. That piece, like it slapped me across my face because I was just like, what? Like too authentic. Why aren't there, I have a couple questions. Hmm. Why aren't there more, this is a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Like why aren't there more people of color, specifically South Asian teachers in the forefront Yeah, in your perspective? No, I think it's a really, actually a really deep question. And it's not a simple answer. It's not just white supremacy or just racism. Um, because I want to be really clear, there's a lot of black women 
In particular, it's black women leading the way in yoga in the West. And you and I know it's not without struggle to get to the places that they've gotten, right? So, um, so there's people doing it. So why are there not South Asians? Well, I think one of the aspects, there's, there's two real reasons. And one is when the British colonized India, which they first colonized economically, like in the 1600s, and then in the 1800s, it was political rule. So that's about 400 years of, you know, domination. They told, they had to tell, like all oppressors tell stories of those they oppress. They had to tell a story of inferiority of Indians. And so one of the aspects of the stories was that the practices, the culture, the spirituality was heathen, was less than, was freaky, was weird, was, you know, an aberration. And so even people of my generation, our families, if we say we do yoga, some of the elders, like the aunties and uncles, you know, and the grandparents generation are like, oh, what are you doing? You know, what is that, what is that thing you're doing? Because they internalized that oppressive narrative. Now, in part, again, it's not an accident because yogis in even before it was even a political role in India, yogis actually banded together, right? Like the karma yogis and tried to throw a wrench in the machine of empire and would disrupt trade routes, would slash, you know, train tires. Would, they, were, they were disrupting the mechanisms of control. And so because the yogis were doing this, you know, violent, nonviolent, it's, it's a gray area, you know, property destruction in that way. Um, but to them, that was an act of ahimsa. Mm-hmm. Because of that, they were, they were called hoodlums, you know. Um, um, I'm trying to remember the word. Like, there's a word that now, um, it might be, I'll have to look it up, but a word that um, came from the description of the British describing these yogis as like outlaws, essentially, that now we use uh, today in the, in the U.S. that basically means like like a someone who's kind of a good for nothing, right? And um, and all of that narrative got internalized by many many Indians, and it was a narrative of oppression. It was a narrative that itself was untrue and was was a tool of finding more control. So it's built in with manifest destiny, the idea that the British, the white folks, like were the ones destined to rule and to civilize this land and these people um, that went through India, Africa, all sorts of places. And because of that, the lineages of yoga practitioners and Ayurvedic practitioners were broken. Like first, because you know, a lot of times the practice was criminalized right. and by the, the British government, but, um, but then that was also enforced by other Indians, you know? So, so it's complicated. It's not so simple. Um, so that's one reason I think. And then the second is because, and this is more about white supremacy, because when the actual seat of authority, because even with all that disruption, you know, I grew up, like when I couldn't sleep, my dad would guide me through yogic breathing and visualization, visualization exercises to help me fall asleep. You know, my aunties would teach me yoga ethics. Mm. You know, like came in through the folklore, through the folk knowledge and the folk wisdom. And um, as so many of our traditions, like when we look, we're like, oh, 
oh, that's a part of that. Oh, that's Santeria. That's, you know, like, oh, I see now. Like, <laughs> it just kind of yeah. bled on through. <laughs> yeah. So we still had it. Um, I still was raised with it, but it just wasn't ever formally taught. And so in the West, when you unseat those from whom the practices come, it makes them easier to exploit, right? And yeah. I don't know that anyone intentionally did that, but I think that's the nature of privilege and power and supremacy is that it, it by its very nature, it centers itself, you know? So when like, um, uh, you know, Paramsa Yogananda came and talked with the Parliament of World Religions, the white folks in the East and then in LA and the West who studied with him couldn't help but center themselves. Didn't look mm. like, why are there so few Indians here? We need to help uplift. Like they just didn't even think about it and they just centered themselves and they became that, those lineage holders, lineage holders in that case of, um, of the knowledge as it came through uh, because then it makes it easier. Like, oh, this thing's so powerful. It's back to that first question, you know, like it's so powerful, but I'm going to just say it's mine, you know, mm. and not where it's come from or who it belongs to. or uh, And so there's this sort of double separation for Indian and South Asian folks and Desi folks of like, there's a separation from the root. And then that second separation of like, and you don't belong here. And, and every Indian yoga teacher I've talked to has been fired from a studio or not hired um, or asked to stop chanting, asked to stop using Sanskrit, you know, including myself, um, for that reason of, it makes people uncomfortable. And I even ask, and a lot of folks, if anyone listening is a yoga teacher, if an Indian, you're not Indian, uh, if an Indian person walks into the classroom, how do you feel, right? Like, <laughs> people, there's a little bit of like, ooh, I don't want to do this wrong. Ooh, I want their approval. Ooh, I hope I'm not, you know, and none of that is theirs. Like right. responsible for teaching the teacher. Um, but that alone just goes to show there's something not quite right. Yeah. There's a power dynamic that is just so far off. Yeah. So far off. Yeah. It was, int- I'm glad that you brought up the Yogananda piece because I was actually going to ask about that and how there were these incredible yogis that came over here as part of like their yogic practice to continue to share it. But it's like something just went left, you know. It's like next thing you know, the only—I mean—and I—and I some—I and I was wondering, like, is that was it by design or is it literally? You kind of answered the question of like they couldn't help but center themselves. Yeah, I think I think it's not. I mean, it's sort of by design of what you originally said, like capitalism, white supremacy. Like that's just what it does. And and there are ways in which I think even some of the early Indian yogis and yogic practitioners are complicit in that, right? Because again, this gets into intersectionality. There were not, I don't think Yogananda, but there were some Indians who um, tried to argue for their whiteness. Now they didn't succeed. But mm. argue to qualify themselves as not people of color in order to have benefit from their proximity to whiteness, right? So that to me is like there was there was already stuff going on 
Um, and although my family, like my aunts and uncles who, when they were in college in the 60s in the South here, um, they drink from, they had to drink from the, you know, quote unquote colored drinking fountains. They experienced the disprivilege of being people of color. I think there were ways that their adjacency to whiteness and Indians in general adjacency to whiteness, like, and trying to, to you know, that just having been under colonial rule for 400 years, right? there was already a, a sort of orientation towards like, fitting into a system in which you could gain a benefit from making the oppressors happy. And right. so I think that continued somewhat here uh, with yoga and which isn't to excuse those actions. I don't think they're right. Um, and I think ultimately, again, it was, it was whiteness and white power that defined the direction of yoga in the West, not it wasn't the wishes of the, even those Indian teachers that it's turned out the way it has. Right. Um, I think they were really trying to share like the spiritual sense. The yeah. More yeah. That's a, that's a great, I, that's a great point. I honestly never even thought about Indian folk back in the six, like, you know, back in segregation times, like I yeah. never even crossed my mind, but that totally, Totally makes sense. I want to double back to your mentioning of Black women really coming in and leading the, um, in some ways, leading like the new yoga movement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of our first conversations together was about cultural appropriation and specifically me kind of questioning and rumbling with the being a Black person that was taught first of all, by white people, white yoga teachers, and then my beloved teacher, um, who's a black woman, but um, me struggling with the cultural appropriation piece for, in a black body. And yeah. so I'd love to kind of continue that conversation here and your thoughts. And, you know, I, I think it's beautiful. You're mentioning the, the leadership of black women. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the truth is, as settler colonial in the United States, right? Even though I came here as an immigrant and as a child, I too have benefited from the labor of indigenous people and black folks for hundreds of years. And that is unrecognized and paid. And so I want to also like situate our conversation in that context. And I think you can't, you can't really talk about yoga and this movement for like kind of honoring yoga, reclaiming yoga without acknowledging that in the West. Mm. And so because of that, there is an intersectional lens, both currently and also historically, that I really think is important to take. And there have been black folks in India for centuries, you know, hundreds, maybe even thousands of years. And there's also been cross conversation between, you know, as far as we know, folks maybe even in Egypt, and the Indus Valley, as far back as when yoga was being codified and developed. So my understanding, and as I mentioned to you before, I'm not an expert in this, but my understanding is that there is, there are forms of yoga that were developed in Egypt, that were developed in Africa. Whether they were called yoga or not, I don't know, right? Now um, we have a description of comedic yoga, and it's not my area of study or expertise. It's my area of inquiry as a student. I think mm -hmm. it's important me to learn and continue to learn. Um, so when I talk about respecting the roots of yoga, I often will say like the black and brown roots 
for two reasons. One is because of that, we don't know. Um, I am in more of a like a yana yogi for the codification and development of yoga in India and the subcontinent, which was done by Indians, you know, which is like family lineage heritage. So I can speak more about that, but that doesn't mean that there weren't black yogis, right? Way back when. And so, you know, sitting under trees and caves practicing. And so I like to acknowledge that. And also I think it's really important in the West when there has been these generational, like hundreds of years of exploitation by white supremacy and colonization of indigenous lands, like to not unseat folks of color and particularly black folks um, and brown folks as well, but particularly black, black folks from a, a source of liberation. Mm. And if yoga is that source, then for me, it's actually more important than saying like, oh, yoga came from India, you know, like who cares? Like, I actually think it's great if it originated in Africa and then got codified and developed in India in the way that it did. Like all of that is wonderful. Um, what interests me is how do, like your question, how do we get free? Yeah. How do we get free together? And so I would always prioritize that intersectionality. Um, and I sometimes get called out, I want to be transparent about this, by South Asians who are like, Susanna, why are you talking about Black? Like, do you have any proof of this? It's like, no, you know, I don't need proof. Mm. I, I don't proof is like, are we using a colonizer's mindset or an indigenous mindset? Like, would the early yogis have been like, no, you're not a yogi because you're this or you're that? No, you know? And, and so for me, it's really uh, an issue of liberation and, and also respect and, um, and justice. And so I, I don't think I'm perfect at it, but I am going to always try to take an intersectional lens and look at how can we get free together. And in particular, uplift the voices of black folks and brown folks and, and in yoga, particularly black folks and South Asian folks. Yeah, I love that. I love that also you had mentioned like, you can't really talk about Western yoga. You can't really talk about anything Western without acknowledging the indigenous and black people who have created the space, who have put in the labor for all of it to stand. So like, that's a really, I had never really thought about it. Like I thought about it obviously multiple times, but I never like positioned it in that way that it's like, at the end of the day, none of it would have been possible if it hadn't have been for the labor of people of color. Yeah, it's really true. And, and there's a lot of history that we kind of gloss over or, you know, and, and this gets into like, like we're not going to get free by separating, right? Like I think of, um, or by just saying like, oh, it's just for my people or just for my people. Like when the, when post the Emancipation Proclamation, right? Is when lo and behold, the borders opened up and Bangladeshi, Indian laborers, Asian laborers were brought in in droves to work on the railroads, to pave across, you know, across the country to the West. Um, many who, who died, but that that only happened because of you know a system already of oppression and white right. dominance and white supremacy so all of that it's like now we're here and so either we kind of like the way i look at it is we all need to get free together so me coming out and talking about honoring yoga's roots 
and just saying, oh, this is for South Asians, like, no, that misses actually, like the dismantling of what yoga is happened on the backs of black and brown people on everyone's backs. And, and so the repair doesn't just happen for some people, it happens for all of us. Yeah, I love that. That is so resonant for me, so resonant. So I want to, as we begin to start to wrap up, I kind of, in this theme of we all need to be free and we all need to, we're all like just working towards getting free. What does it look like for those white folks specifically, people of color, all of us, to want to go to our yoga studios and want to go and for those me like I teaching yoga was one of those things that I had never felt alignment the way that I felt until the first time I've ever taught yoga Mm -hmm. I felt the most alignment that I had ever felt in my entire life Mm -hmm. like I was doing exactly what I was supposed to be doing Mm -hmm. and it has been so sad it's been so much grief for me coming from that space and then being in this disillusioned space of not really knowing how to navigate and where to be. And so I guess my question to you is how speaking to the teachers like me, speaking to white folks who practice and teach, how do we move forward in a way that is honoring and embracing yoga? Well, To start, I think it's a different answer for folks, you and folks like you and white folks. And I'll break down why. Um, But there are some similarities. And the similarities are learn the full expanse of what yoga is, right? And my teachers have always said, like, Susanna, you could study your whole life and still not scratch the surface. Like, it doesn't mean we have to be an expert in everything that we do need. And I am always a continual student of yoga. I'm not, even though I am a teacher, I'm always a student. And so I think being in that kind of relationship of studentship and humility is so important and, and not just asana, but beyond asana, although asana and inclusive asana is so important too. And then yoga philosophy, living it, embodying it, um, and then practicing that yoga philosophy as a justice practice. So for white folks, I, to me, you know, part of ahimsa The first yama is really doing that deep inquiry on one's positionality, you know, one's power and, and working not to center oneself Mm. and to lift other folks up. And, and so particularly for white folks, I think it's a different charge because it's sort of like, there's so much centering, there's so much power, there's so much authority given to white folks. Um, especially cisgender, you know, thin, like all of folks who kind of fit all the normative expectations of what a yoga, like if you Google yoga, who you see, um, that there's a lot of responsibility to lift up others and not lift up like platform yourself alongside them, but really lift up, really build community, really like, um, and to be an inquiry. And there's lots of wonderful diversity, equity, trainers who teach how to do that right so to really be a student of, and it's not like just because you take one course or just because you take like one of my courses on honoring yoga's roots or something that that folks are done it's like a lifelong journey for white folks of that um being in that relationship to yoga and to justice and so and then for folks of color i think 
it's the same like deepening one's practice. And then also, you know, if cultural appropriation is like power, a power hierarchy and imbalance and harm, right. it's checking in with like, okay, in this, in the bigger, in the bigger global context, there's a there's certainly not like a power advantage. But in yoga, there's a way in which this is not, you know, it may or may not be like exactly my culture depends on who we're talking about and so how can i adjust for that like white folks like share my power share my platform share you know um, maybe invite in an indian teacher a south asian teacher to do a lineage acknowledgement or invite them in to share certain practices um, and then adjust for the harm I, I think for me a lot of it is through collaboration and through uplift and it's something i do right so like for example i run yoga teacher trainings well, it's not just me teaching there's like five eight other south asian teachers on the training because there are many things i'm not an expert i'm not an expert in sanskrit i'm a student of sanskrit and so i invited other teachers to teach on that i'm not an expert in physical anatomy and so there's other teachers that come in um, and i'm also not an expert in the black experience because i'm not black right so it's important for me as a teacher holding space in a social justice yoga training to have teachers and experts from different experiences and so i say that to say like for folks of color like yes we may have certain experiences or been gone through certain things but doesn't mean we can speak to everyone and so how can I collaborate with and uplift other folks um, alongside me? And I would invite folks to think about that too, which may mean, you know, in your daily or weekly classes, or it might be in like in workshops, or it might mean, you know, starting more of a yoga collective. I think we're in this time with studio, the studio model is really changing. And my hope is that when we come back, there's more potential and there's more possibility for this kind of revolution from, from the grassroots. So I'm hopeful to see that. And, and I guess I'm curious for you, you said you felt so aligned when you were teaching. Can you like, do you know how or why, or what was that like? Cause I wonder too, if there's some answer in like, what should we do in that? Yeah, I, so I began teaching for the organization that I was trained under, Yoga for a Good Hood, which provided or provides um, free and accessible yoga classes to um, everyone, but with an emphasis on people of color, um, Black folk. And um, when I first started teaching, I was teaching classes that were at least 50% Black. Yeah. And so for me, there was very much alignment of <laughs> you know, being able to play different types of music that you wouldn't maybe necessarily hear in a, in a a white yoga class and being able to speak to things in that class about embodiment, about um, oppression, about femininity, about all these different things that um, none of the teachers that I had been taught by had would were bringing that in and so there was a really it was the alignment of the people that i was able to teach and mm -hmm. there was an alignment in um the the reciprocal there was a there was a reciprocal relationship 
that I, that as I taught at more studios and, you know, was trying to make money off of teaching and things like that, I lost the reciprocal relationship. That's amazing. Yeah. So I think there's, there's some insight in that, which is like, what I'm hearing is you got to really define who you were teaching to and who you were teaching to was like part of you, you know, and, um, and you could speak really authentically and really like bring the yoga tools and yoga philosophy to, to bear in a very relatable way. And so my hope is that, you know, the thing is that we've seen is we really don't need these systems and these structures that are oppressive, that are oppressive. We just don't like, we can create our own systems now. And as these other structures are falling apart. And so maybe it is getting together with a number of other folks of color and or reconnecting with that organization or any new one, right? And, and creating like classes where you're like unapologetically, this is for black folks. Like this, that's who this is for, you know, this workshop, this training, this retreat. And I think we get to say that now, like I'm doing something just for South Asian folks. And I feel great about it. And, you know, there's many other things that people can do that are for everyone. So not, you know, it's not an issue of being exclusive. It's an issue of like, these are the folks who haven't been served. The the typical yoga class that one would walk into actually is catering to white people. So we've got a smorgasbord of that, you know, and we're just over here doing a few little things. And I think that, that tide will shift and it'll become much more accessible for more so i'm excited for that time i I think i'm really hopeful for that i think it's it's not an easy transition you know there's a lot of struggle a lot of suffering for so many of us and um and yet i'm hopeful that with all the suffering a call to a more authentic kind of depth of practice a practice that grapples with life and death and sickness and racism you know that that's what's going to be birthed forward yeah i love that that's a that's a perfect way to to end perfect way to end um before i ask the last question where can people find you when this comes out your book will be coming out as well so where can people find that and yeah yeah so my book should be available at most places books are sold but the main place you can find it and link to it is on my website, which is Susanna Barkataki slash book. And there's a free chapter connecting the roots of yoga to trauma-informed yoga that folks can download if that's the most accessible. And then there'll be a link to buy the book there as well. Awesome. Thank you. Um, And just to wrap up, what is lighting you up right now? Hmm. I have really been loving journaling. I love getting up in the morning, doing a little yoga asana, a little pranayama, like breath work, and then getting out my journal and just writing, 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 and letting what comes through, come through. Uh, It's a form of svadhyaya, a form of self-study for me and self-inquiry, and also helps me not take myself too seriously. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been such a pleasure to be able to talk with you. It's so great to talk with you. And I, um, I look forward to hearing this and also seeing what other stuff you're 
you're creating and where all this goes with yoga and beyond. Absolutely, thank you. Ooh, such a good episode. Um, yoga is one of my, one of the most, like, most precious parts of my life. Um, my relationship to it, it has been up and down, rocky and really smooth, but I tend to always somewhat, somehow find my way back to it. I hope this episode inspires you to deepen your own practice or start your practice if you don't have one. Um, but yeah, so please support Susanna and her work, her new book that's coming out. I had the pleasure of being able to read an advanced copy of it, and it's a really incredible piece of work and just good for any person that's interested in this incredible practice. Um, so yeah, please support and continue to support um, this show and share and like and subscribe and do all the good things. Your support always means so much to me. Um, and if you're interested in joining us for Books and Yoga next week, um, go ahead and get your tickets at the link below. Have a restful, attuned, slow, juicy week. And I will see you in a couple weeks. Bye.